Good morning. If you're visiting with us, we're especially grateful that you are here. I spoke to some visitors that said, we are excited to hear Tommy preach this morning. And to that, I responded, well, he's not here. He is, he is doing a um, lectureship on leadership uh, for a church. And so that's where he is at uh, this morning. And so I'll be filling in for him, and he will be back uh, next week. Uh, for that, but we're going to continue in our study of First Peter that Tommy has started, and we've been working through uh, for a couple months now. So I was in college. I was a sophomore, and I was interning at a large church in Texas. Had probably about a hundred teenagers um, that that we were working with, and there was two interns. There was myself, and then a female intern. And we got the idea because it was summer. Uh, we got the idea that we would have a night where we would have a girls' night and guys' night. She would take the girls, they would plan whatever they plan, I would take the guys, and we'd plan lots of macho, manly things that we were going to do, and we were going to have a lot of fun. But quickly what it turned out to be was that while the girls were at the building and we were at uh, one of the guys' house, each of us separately had the idea, hey, we should go and prank the girls, and the girls thought, hey, we should go and prank the guys. So whatever plans we had quickly were thrown out the window because this just kind of overcame our thinking, and we said, how do we get them? So the guys started, and uh, we went and we TP'd the, the church. Not a good thing, okay? We TP'd the church where they were at, and so they said, you know what? While they go to the movies, let's go ahead and put sticky notes all over Chris's car, and that way... You can't drive off until you peel them off because otherwise it's littering. And so my whole car, it was purple, so I didn't really care. But they put sticky notes all over my car. And the guy said, you know what? We cannot stand for this. They will not do that to Chris. <laughs> let's go back to the church where they are staying, and let's go and steal all the antennas to their cars. So we go, and we stole all the antennas. And then we got the bright idea. Let's go ahead and let out some air to their tires. Yeah, no, and I said, oh, great idea. <laughs> we just said, forgive the sins of my youth, right, okay? And I said, oh, I have an air pump in the back, no big deal. But when you empty 20 cars, all four tires, a single air pump is not gonna do. And so the night ended with parents being called. We lost one antenna. Um, and it just was one thing after another, trying to top the other. And the girls actually did top us because they went into the boys' bathroom and completely defaced it and we had to clean it up. <laughs> Have you ever been there before? Have you ever been in a place where you thought that I need to one-up you or do better than what you did to me? Anything you can do, I can do better where we continually take continuous action. And when you look back, you go, I have no idea how I got here. I don't know how I lost your antenna, sir. I am sorry. Don't, uh, don't kick me out, right? Maybe it wasn't something funny or harmless like a prank night. But instead, maybe it was a conflict between you and your spouse or you and your children where you did not want to give up your position and so you took one action after another trying to one up or maybe it was between a brother and sister or a spouse or maybe it was somebody that you would consider an enemy it's funny when it's 
pranks and harmless, and we're all good friends still to this day. But when it's relationships and close ones, and it's not a funny matter, then it can be destructive to everything that we do and everything that we are about. Have you been there before? It's natural for us to go back to that. Anything you can do, I can do better. I can outdo you. Peter, I think, has a different idea than that. That's what we naturally tend to do. That's where we want to go. But Peter has a different idea. We're going to continue in our study of 1 Peter. So if you will, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we are going to be focusing on what Xander read, verses 8, 8 through 12. Okay? And our section starts off with the words, finally, followed by all of you. And this right now should get our attention. It should make some of you slouching maybe sit up a little straighter in your seats and perk up. Because finally does not mean the conclusion of the book, but instead the conclusion to the section that he started back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, which says, Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. All right, have honorable con conduct so that they will glorify God. And then Peter goes through a list, the governing authority, unbelieving husbands, unbelieving masters. And if we were to give one word to what Peter is communicating of what kind of conduct that they ought to have and what it should look like, that one word would be submission. Submit to the governing authorities. Submit to your masters. Wives, submit to your husbands as a way to win them over. And maybe over the last couple of weeks, you have chosen to check out a little bit because maybe you're not a husband or you're not a wife or you're not a slave or a master. And you say, you know what? doesn't really pertain to me. And that's when Peter brings not only his audience back, but he brings us back into the conversation as well because he says, finally, comma, all of you. Peter is making it clear that, he is, that what he is about to say not only includes everyone, but we also all bear equal responsibility, just as his readers for the first time when they read it. God's elect, God's chosen, can't afford to miss what Peter is about to say. And if one person misses this directive, I believe that it undermines everything. Sometimes as we're sitting here listening to preachers preach, podcasts, whatever it may be, we have a tendency to think to ourselves, I'm glad this is brought up because so-and-so needs to work on it. <laughs> Today I want you to think of you and you only. Because it may be something that you need to work on and not something that you just hope someone else puts in the work for you. The audience that Peter is writing to is one that is suffering grief in the midst of all kinds of trials. And I don't know about you, but when trial comes my way, it's easy for me to lose focus on my why. In other words, without the why, I'm, I am able to justify not doing actions that are difficult and go against 
my nature. It's easy for me to lose the big picture. And Peter is going to give directives that I believe is grounded in verse 12 that come out of Psalms 34, which if you read all of Psalms 34, it focuses on the Lord's deliverance of those who are afflicted. And verse 12 of chapter 3 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I don't know about you, but I want to be known and I want to be seen by God as someone who is righteous and finds favor with him. I want to be righteous in that there's right living that accompanies what I believe about who God is, that I act in accordance with what Christ has called me to do. Righteous is right living. And I think Peter here shows us what right living looks like. In verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart, and a humble mind. And the question that comes up is, does verse 8 pertain to how we relate with those inside the church, inside the body of believers, or those who are outside of the church? Contextually, it would be easy to make the case that it is for those who are outside the church, because that's what Peter has been talking about, right? Authorities, husbands, masters. He's been addressing their behavior toward those unbelievers. But when you look at the specific words that Peter uses, they're sprinkled throughout the New Testament as the ideal way to relate to one another. In other words, the way that we relate to each other. For example, Romans chapter 12, 16, when it speaks of harmony, it says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight or compassionate when talked about in Ephesians chapter 4, 32. Be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Verse 8, therefore, I believe is when he gives us those five directives is what righteous living inside of the body of Christ ought to look like. Church, to survive the toxic nature of this world, it is imperative that we first begin to live as a community of oneness, as a community that is unified. And I think that's why Peter pauses for just a second to address the interpersonal relationship between brothers and sisters in Christ. It's as though he is saying, as the trials come your way, you make sure that you are about the business of having unity of mind, that you are about the business of being sympathetic toward another, showing brotherly love, be compassionate and be humble. Let your lives be marked by humility you see, what Peter has done is he's just described what I believe are the five building blocks of unity. That if we desire to be unified, for any church for that matter, these are the bricks that we are going to choose to build with and labor over. They're going to be the bricks that we put together before the storm and that we continue to build through the storm. I recently saw this uh, the show about a heist, and I love movies that is, is about a heist. I don't know why. I think it's just so cool how they come up with these crazy ideas, but one thing that is always true about those is in the heist, if they are the bad guys, if you will, you know that at some point it's going to blow up, and it's not going to go according to plan, 
Why? Because they all have different ways that they want to achieve it. They all are out for themselves. They don't have unity of mind. They're not sympathetic toward one another. They're not compassionate, right? They're all about themselves. And you just know that when the pressure from the outside comes in, when the cops are coming, it's not going to turn out the way that they had thought. I think it's the same for us, not that we are the bad guys, but in the sense that if we do not practice these things, then when the outside pressure of the world comes and those things aren't a part of it, it's going to blow up. It's going to be a negative response. If you look at the five qualities, they create a chiasm. Um, it's hard without, like, power, like in Norfolk, I'd have PowerPoint, I can show you what a chiasm is. Uh, you know, it's basically you have five things, and one and five go together, two and uh, four go together, and then three is like the top of the pyramid, if you will. It's the most important. And if you look at it closely, I think unity of mind and humbleness go hand in hand, right? The NIV says harmony with one another, and the term literally means to be of like mind. You see, it's a call to uniformity, it's not a call to uniformity for all of us to look the same, but unanimity and agreement in our call to serve Christ and to love one another. Not to be guided by selfish interests, but to be guided by the things of God. Why? Because we have the mind of Christ. It's not that we all look the same, but it's in this big picture. Overall, what we are trying to do, our goal is the same, and that is to glorify Christ. I think of Peter when he was speaking uh, with Jesus, and Jesus was saying, hey, I am going to have to be crucified, and he's letting the disciples know. And what does Peter say? Um, well, I'll, in Matthew chapter 16, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter looked at him, set him aside, and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but rather on the things of man. The unity of mind is setting ourselves is setting our minds on the things of God. You see, we find understanding and we find meaning in the gospel of Christ that I think Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 describes so beautifully. Pride is the antithesis to unity of mind. It goes directly against that. And so he calls us to have a humble mind. Later in, uh, later in chapter 5, verse 5, he says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In order to be of the same mind, we must not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. We must remember that our identity and who we are comes through Christ Jesus on that day when he died on the cross and rose from the grave. And church, when we do not have the unity of mind, when we are not humble toward one another, then I believe that when 
persecution comes or trials come, and we could look at the um, last few years of just how things have developed, not here but all over the place, when unity of mind is not there, the cost is priorities get shifted and personal desires merge as king. And when we are, do not have a unity of mind, when we get pressured, we each go our separate ways and we tend to become selfish and we tend to say, this is what I want and this is what I think we should do rather than what does God want from us. The second one, or the second dual, being sympathetic and compassion. Sympathy means readiness to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Romans chapter 12, 15. Right? It's this idea of being able to suffer with. Paul, when he spoke, when speaking of the body of Christ to the Corinthian church, uh, about, he's, he reminds them uh, of the sympathy that lives among the members of the body. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, then all rejoice together. Sympathy is suffering with John Stott in his commentary on 1 Peter regarding sympathy says, much contemporary research into human motivation and psychology has the purpose of manipulating people for economic or political advantage. Christian sympathy does not exploit, it shares, and it supports. You see, the secret to sympathizing lies in relating so closely to others that we feel what happens to them as something that is happening to us, and that means a willingness to surrender our independence. I was speaking to Doris this morning, and uh, she was telling me a little bit, or a lot of bit, uh, about her life. And one of the things that she shared was, uh, you know that I can't drive at night very well. Uh, yes, Miss Doris, I did know that. Um, and she said, and you know what's been happening because of that? I did, but I let her keep talking anyways. She said, there are women in this church who bring me to church on Wednesdays and then let me stay at home with them on Wednesday night because I can't drive and I wait to go home on Thursday morning or whatever the scenario would be. What is that? That is women sympathizing with Doris and saying, I know you can't drive at night, and I'm going to be in this with you. That would be terrible for me to be in that position. I'm going to do what I can to make sure that you can get here. Sympathizing with its feeling. And so I'm thankful Doris shared that with me and that there's women here who take it upon themselves to say, let that not just be her burden, but let it be my burden as well. And I think that's when, that's where compassion comes in. They're almost uh, hard to distinguish between the two, compassion and sympathy. Um, but the word of compassion suggests not only having actual feelings of concern for one another, but always then expressing them in action. Those ladies didn't just feel sympathy towards Doris. They felt compassion. They felt compelled to work. You see, Jesus was always motivated. Jesus' compassion always motivated action, right? When uh, Jesus' compassion on the mother who lost her son, it ended with the words, Young man, I say to you, arise. Jesus acted. Compassion on the crowd that left him full Excuse me, Jesus had compassion on the crowd that was hungry because they were with sheep without a shepherd 
and he left them full with 12 baskets left over. Jesus had compassion over the city of Jerusalem because they did not know the things that would make peace. How does that scene end? Jesus dies on the cross for the city of Jerusalem. Why? Because he had compassion on them. You see, sympathy and compassion go hand in hand, and it's being able to do something about it. Feeling with you and then figuring out what is my place in it. Jesus was the king of compassion. My father, I got a lot of qualities from my father, some good, some not so good. One that I wish that I had, and I don't know if I've shared this before, but it's one of compassion. Because he, I don't know how he does it. Uh, there was an instance he was crying and just shedding tears in the living room, and uh, my brother got into his lap and said, Dad, why, why are you crying? He said, there's just so many people who don't know about Jesus, and I can't reach them all. But it drives him to do the things that he does. His compassion moves him to action. Church, we need to be about being compassionate and allowing that to move us into action. The cost of not showing sympathy and not showing compassion when the outside world squeezes us in, when we endure trials, the cost of not having that, I believe, is isolation of individuals or groups of people. That when push comes to shove, if we haven't practiced sympathizing and being compassionate toward one another, then when we begin to look out just for ourselves, we forget what it looks like to walk in the shoes of others, and it isolates people. Not intentionally. I think that's why Peter says, hey, prepare beforehand. Be of this, and then continue to be. Why? So that it keeps people together. It's so easy to isolate. It's so easy to focus on oneself and forget what everyone else is going through. Because guess what? When trials come, you're going to take it different than I'm going to. And it's going to look a little bit different for you than it looks like for me. And if I look at the way that you handle it and I go, I can't believe they're being this sensitive about this. It's where compassion and sympathy comes in. We do not want to be a people who isolate individuals. And so we practice sympathy and compassion when things are going well, and then all the more when they are not. And then at the top, the most important, he says, I urge you to love as brothers. You see, we're going to choose to love one another as though we are family. First John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. What does brotherly love look like? That we are willing to lay down our lives for one another. That I'm willing to sympathize, I'm willing to show compassion, and I'm willing to do that to the extent that I can't, but Christ is going to have to do it through me because I can't do it myself and the Spirit can. I will lay down my life only to pick it up again. Brotherly love is the willingness to lay down our wants, lay down our needs, lay down our feelings, and say, I'm going to do this for you because I know it's what you have. And church, when we are about the business of brotherly love, when trials come, I don't think there's anything that can penetrate it. But when we aren't, 
I think the cost is great. I think it's a loss of identity where each of us loses sight of who the real enemy is and we begin to see each other as the enemy. If we don't love each other as brothers in good times, when the bad times come, when the pressure of society comes and caves in, it's easy for us to lose focus and for us to lose sense of who the real enemy is and we begin to look at each other as though you are and as I am. Why? Because we have different views or different opinions. We have to put those bricks together, always, continually, always working on these five things. Because the cost of not doing so is too great. The cost of doing so, yeah, it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us time. It's going to cost us relationship. It's going to cost, um, it's, it's us putting ourselves out there, and that's going to cost but it is not as great a cost as if we don't. In verse 9, right, um, in verse nine, he then focuses not just on the community of believers. Okay, This is how you ought to be with one another. But then verse 9, he says, Do not repay evil for evil or reveling for reveling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Righteous living toward outsiders is not abstaining from outsiders, right? Sometimes we get this idea that we have been set apart, right? Be holy as I am holy. We are set apart. But sometimes we get the idea that because we are set apart that I cannot associate. Jesus said, be in the world, but don't be of the world. First Peter chapter 2.12, he says, keep your conduct honorable among Right? There's this idea that we are going to be with, we're going to be among. The danger in calling the world toxic, and I realize that I did so in my title, is that I think sometimes in doing so, we convince our minds to think that everybody outside these walls are bad, we are good, do not mix, do not engage, danger, 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 danger. When I think really toxic is a description of what can happen when we adopt the ways of the world and forget the way of cross, forget the way of Christ by way of the cross. Do not view your neighbors as toxic because that communicates to us. Don't, don't, don't. We must engage. Righteous living toward outsiders requires active engagement. Do not repay evil for evil or reveling for reveling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you recall that you may obtain a blessing. Did you pick up where Peter, what Peter instructed his audience to do? When trouble comes your way, when someone has something against you and they go out of their way to make your life miserable, or they are against the idea of being Christian and make that known, there is one response that you should have, one and one only, and that is the one that looks like Christ, and that is to bless, period. Do not repay evil for evil. Instead, bless. We need to be, quit being surprised when the world's point of view is radically different from ours. Newsflash, it will always be if we are the, going the way of Christ. And retaliation is not the way of Christ. I wonder if Peter, as he was writing this, 
was singing about a time when he was in the garden, and they were trying to take Jesus with them. And he swung his sword, and I think he tried to cut the guy's head off personally. Okay? <laughs> Scripture says that, but swung his sword, the guy dodged, and he got an ear instead. I wonder just how hard it was for Peter to write down these words because he knew deep down who he was and what he had tried to do that day in the garden. But then he remembered, it, remembered Jesus' response in the same situation. And he remembered Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount. And he knew, I have to write these down because this is what Christ can do through me. Right? You remember what Jesus did? You'll talk about it in your class, but he put the guy's ear back on. Jesus blessed. To bless means to ask God to show favor and grace upon those who have inflicted harm on you. Period. To bless means to ask God on their behalf because they do not know God to show grace and favor. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 verse 60 when he was getting killed what did he say? Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Or what did Jesus say when he was on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. You see, what each of them did is as they were undergoing the trials that they were going through, they chose to bless in sincerity of heart, they said, I hope and pray that they get to see Jesus at the end of their life, that they get to be with God. It's a far, sorry, it is a far cry from wanting justice to be served. Instead, it's a cry for God to bring them into his loving arms and to unleash grace upon grace. To bless is to want nothing more for an outsider than to know who Jesus is. And that's going to require you to set aside your personal feelings toward them and raise up Christ uh, and what he can do in that situation. You know, I wonder just how differently the culture wars that we are currently experiencing and that we have experienced in our nation the last couple years, I wonder how they would be going if Christians would have taken a knee and prayed blessing upon those who were in opposition rather than blasting their enemies over the internet and over articles and over videos. What difference could that have made into where we are today? I'm not saying this church, I'm saying as a whole, what difference could it have made if we chose to instead just say, I know you see things differently. Fine, but I want you to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And we begin to pray for that to happen for these individuals. Because guess what? If Christ enters into their lives, then their views also begin to change. Why? Because Christ can and does do that through the power of his spirit. Romans chapter 12, 20 and 21 says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. This idea of heaping burning coals, I don't think, is something that is nasty. I think it's this idea of 
doing something that can lead them to repentance and lead them to being able to see the cross of Christ. And you're asking yourself, but why would I do this? And the answer is in the next verse, but on the contrary, bless, for to this is what you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Why would I do it? Because you were called to bless, period, right? There's debate if called to means um, refers to blessing those who have cursed you or to receiving the blessing. I think here Peter has in mind the former, right? You are called to bless. I'm called to bless out of response to cursing. You are called to bless out of response to cursing. And I'm called to bless out of a response to the blessing that I receive from Christ. Church, if we are not willing to bless those who are outside these walls, who are quote-unquote enemies to us, then the cost is that we lose our distinction. We as Christians will undergo trials because we are set apart, because we are different. And the irony is, is that when we do react a lot like the world, when we are cursed and we choose to curse, we will immediately lose our distinction. We suffer trials because we are distinct. And then we get angry we are suffering trials, and so we will then curse. That's when you have lost it. You lose your distinction among them. Want to be distinct? Want to be set apart? Want to have a righteous life? Look what Peter says in 10 through 12, and then we will be done. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The reason I seek to live a righteous life before my brothers and sisters, before those who are against me is ultimately because I am accountable to God. That's it. Sometimes I can't do it on my own. Many times I can't. But because I'm accountable to God, then that is what I'm called to do. Speaking with a friend who's going through uh, a bit of a rough time and just having uh, relationship issues. And, And one of the things that he said to me was the one thing that keeps me going is that I do it for the sake of Christ. I don't want to. I don't feel like it. I don't. But I will do it for the sake of Christ. Live a righteous life among your brothers and sisters and a righteous life among the pagans for the sake of Christ. Because it is in that that you will find that you receive the blessings from God. What does it say? He hears our prayer. May we be a people that choose to focus on these relationships in here and on those out there. And we choose to live out the way of Christ in everything that we do. Let's go ahead and stand and sing. God sent